All right, everybody awake? We're here? Three of you, awesome. Um, that's enough, we're gonna go. So you all look great, what I can see of you, but I want you to notice a couple things, all right? The steps are closed, have you seen that? So we're thankful they are going to be repairing and replacing those steps and redoing all the concrete. The delay right now is that the concrete guy is way backed up and it's wet. I don't know if you've noticed. And however, it is not wet in here this morning. Have you noticed that? That it's not dripping? So if you pay attention, there's still a few drips, but there's not as many drips. Like it's not a stream. And uh, we're, we're grateful and we're thankful. Uh, Travis Foster purchased this building several months ago and is already doing some great work. So if you see Travis, thank him, let him know. But we're, we're glad to be a part of that. Um, part, one of the things that he did tell me last week, and if any of you have experience in this or are interested in this, he would love to pursue a grant that would actually replace the whole roof on the building. And so I told him I had a church full of incredible people that might have experience in writing grants. And so if you're interested in that, I would love to get you guys connected and, and move in that way. So be praying for that. A um, couple things coming up you need to know about. Uh, the unveiled youth retreat. Today is the day that you have to sign up by. So I think we have almost 15 students signed up right now. They're going to have an incredible weekend. If they have friends that want to go, make sure you do that. If you have not signed your student up, get that going. Please get that taken care of. And then Wednesday night, we have our second night of the table. And we're privileged to have Dr. Sarah Garrison coming to share with us uh, in the priority of strengthening our families. She's going to be take, talking directly about how we strengthen our relational house and what that means. And so I would love for you guys to come be a part of that. That's Wednesday night at six o'clock. We'll start with food and then we'll have some great conversation and community together. So we're going to jump in. If you got a Bible, you can go to Ruth chapter three. Ruth chapter three is where we're going to be. As you're turning there, I don't often use too many sports stories in this church, but this one was too good to be passed up. So I got a question for you. Does anybody know who this is? Anybody know? There's a little bit of mumbling. Um, this is Vontae Davis, who played for the Buffalo Bills. I, play, uh, I say played because he's 30 years old. He spent 10 years in the NFL, and last Sunday, he retired from the game at halftime. The very middle of the game, he walked into the locker room and communicated to whoever he needed to communicate to, I'm done. I shouldn't be out here anymore. This is a long season. It sounds like the game is long. And it's just, I have to go. Like, I have to go. Uh, he got all kinds of responses. People were celebrating him, saying, you're taking care of your health. Way to go. His teammates did not have that feeling. They thought it was incredibly disrespectful. I would say regardless of how you feel about this, he didn't even finish the game. So as we're talking in a series about grit, I can't pass that up. There's no grit in retiring at halftime. Okay? And yet again, I'm communicating to you that our culture today has the spiritual gift of quitting. We're so good at checking out. We're so good at giving up. We're so good at simply saying, we're done. We're done. This is the third week of this series called Grit, and we have been hitting so many things that I think are so important. I hope it's been challenging to you. I hope it's, it's speaking into your life about what God has for you, that, that there are many things we've said. We've said that for any human being out there, any human being who's ever lived, who's ever existed, all of us have the capacity for a second wind. 
But for the follower of Christ, we actually have the gift of God's Holy Spirit within us. And while every human being has the potential for grit, the capacity for a second wind, for the Christ follower, especially when it regards the life of spirituality and how you relate to God, you have the Holy Spirit within you. And grit then is a gift that is always within, always beside you. However, it's not easy. Grit never happens in easy circumstances. I thought of this last week, and I thought, why didn't I think of this the first week? You know, I've been telling you, grit doesn't come with easy circumstances. I'm going to make this easy for you to remember. I'm so proud of this. You don't get gritty while you're sitting pretty. I know. If I'd come up with that in week one, you all would have tweeted it. You'd have put it on Facebook. I could have written a book, but it's too late now. But you don't. You don't get gritty when your life is moving simply and easy and comfortably. Grit comes with time and patience and, and actually struggles. And then last week we said that grit actually happens at this intersection between God's presence in our lives and our practices throughout our lives. That God's presence shows up. We understand that God is sovereign, God is faithful, but we have to be disciplined. We have to be moving forward. So we've been looking at this through the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth, I hope you've fallen in love with this story. Today, you're going to fall even more in love with this story, I hope. Ruth chapter 1 tells us the story of this woman, Naomi, who's the central character. And, and Naomi and her husband are in this place in Israel where there's a famine. And they end up leaving Israel for this enemy territory of Moab because of the famine. And while they're there, both of their sons get married. And Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. And then both of the sons die. And so it's left to be Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. And she says to them, you know what? You stay here. You go be protected because I can't take care of you anymore. I'm going back to Israel. There's food there. I've got nothing left. I'm going to go be a peasant and a beggar in Israel. That's the best I can do. You stay here. And one of the daughters-in-law says, that's logical. That's what I'm going to do. Ruth has this incredible moment where she says, I'm gritty. I'm going with you. With you. And she says, I will not leave you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I'll go back with you. And we see in Ruth chapter 2, we talked about last week, this weird practice of the, the gleaning laws and how Ruth actually goes into the field of this man named Boaz and she begins picking up the scraps and the leftovers and, and Boaz notices Ruth, remember? And Ruth notices Boaz for her Ruth. And, and, and there's this incredible moment where Boaz provides hope for her. We read this, this amazing verse, the very centerpiece of the book of Ruth. Look at this again from chapter 2, verse 20. It says this. This is Naomi speaking to Ruth. The Lord bless him. She says, he has not stopped showing his what? Kindness, his hesed. This covenant loyalty, this faithfulness, this love, unlike anything we know. He's not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Then she added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Now everybody say guardian redeemer. This is an important word that I didn't explain to you last week. Today I'm going to explain it to you. In the Hebrew, the word is goel. Everybody say goel. goel. All right. You're with me. I love it. The Goel, the guardian redeemer, this is simply put, this was the nearest adult male blood relative who in the case of a family suffering would advocate for that member, that suffering member, that vulnerable member of the family clan to work in order to make things better. So when Naomi says that man is our Goel, he's our guardian redeemer, he's our kinsman redeemer, it's a very Jewish term. We don't really have anything like that today in our culture, but what it simply means is that it was someone who was meant to redeem, to buy back, to recover, 
to restore. There were several ways this could happen, that, that the, the goel might redeem property that once, was once owned, and then the family lost it, and the goel would go in and say, I'm going to purchase this back. I'm going to redeem this. I'm going to revalue this. The goel might redeem poor relatives who were now functioning as slaves. They might step in and say, I will buy their freedom. They might revenge the killing of a relative through bloodshed. Are you with me? It's Braveheart. It's the goel, right? I'm going to go and I'm going to take care of this. They might assist relatives in a lawsuit for the sake of justice. They might redeem the wife of the deceased to raise up the name of the dead person by marrying the widow. So they might marry the widow to resurrect the name, the lineage. They might restore a clan widow who was facing old age alone with no one to care. They might say, we will take care of you. Think Hatfields and McCoys with Jesus in the middle. That's kind of what's going on. This is the goel. So as we enter chapter 3, we find Ruth, this foreign immigrant, widowed young woman, gleaning in the fields of her mother-in-law's nearest Goel. We find her bringing a great deal of harvest home and excited because Boaz has noticed her and is watching out for her and is protecting her. And it's a tension point as we step into seeing what might happen here. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. It says this, one day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Now, just pause there. We don't know how long this has been since chapter 2. We don't know if it's been days, months, weeks. We don't know. But she says, tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. This is a process there where they would take the harvest, they would take it into the threshing floor, and they would throw it up in the air, and all of the the necessary ingredients would separate into the right places until they had the barley they needed. She says that's where he's going to be. He's going to be working late. And so she says, wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you were there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Everybody say, scandalous. <laughs> I told you, this is an R-rated sermon, okay? Now, there are lots of questions already. What is going on? Why would she tell him, like, wash, perfume, bathe, then lay at his feet? See what happens. See what he says. What is this about? We're going to get there. For right now, I want you to notice what's taking place in Naomi. Before we jump to the scandal, I want you to see what's taking place in Naomi. It was just two chapters ago. As she arrived back in Israel with Ruth, that she said these words to the women who saw her coming home. She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter or empty, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And I want you to notice this because Naomi has moved from that bitterness and emptiness to now saying, I got a plan. I was hopeless, but now I've got this incredible plan. She's moving. She's moving from hopeless to helpful. She's taking action instead of dying in inaction. See, we've said from the first week of the series that Ruth is the grittiest character in this book. But let me tell you something you're going to see here today. Hanging out with gritty people makes grit contagious. When you spend your time with gritty people, when you surround yourself with people that are just going to follow Christ no matter what, they're not going to get distracted by the struggles of life. They're not going to get disabled because of things that are coming down on them. You start to go, you know what? I got some of that. You sneeze some grit on me. I think I caught what you're doing. 
it's true. Grit tends to spread. It tends to spill over to the people around it. So for Naomi, as she survived this broken, desperate part of her life, as she's seen Ruth find hope gleaning in the scraps, as she's watched Ruth live her gritty life, she started to see life isn't over. I'm not finished yet. In fact, she thinks, I think, I have a lot of life left to live. So she gives Ruth this strange plan about getting dressed up and sneaking into this man's bed. Now, some of you are like, this does not sound very Christian. What is this all about? I'm going to tell you, but not now. Look at verse 7. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, okay, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Is it getting hot in here? In the middle of the night, something startled the man. Yeah. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. And he said what any guy would, who are you? Now, everybody look at your neighbor and just say, say what? <laughs> like, because this is an intense scene. There's a lot for me to unpack here. I earned my seminary degree in this passage. But before we do, here's what I bet I know about you. If this is the first time you've ever heard this story, you've ever read this story, I bet you're thinking this is absolutely scandalous. I didn't know this was in the Bible. And I get it. But let me tell you why that's the first place where your mind went. Because we live in a culture where scandals are rampant and integrity is constantly compromised. We immediately think scandal. We immediately think controversy. We have news outlets that make millions of dollars a year on scandals that include and are built on compromised integrity. So to read a story like this, our minds immediately jump to questions of scandal. We instantly consider the sexual nature of this moment and what might be taking place with Ruth and Boaz. And I get it because it's what we're surrounded with. But let me start with this. This is a scandalous story, but not in any way that you're thinking about. And I'm going to break this down. First, let me just tell you this. Ruth is told by her mother-in-law, wash yourself, put on perfume, dress up. Now, can I just say to you, this is not about seduction. This is about transformation. To this point in their culture, Ruth would have been in mourning. She would have been wearing the clothes of grief. She would have been not taking care of herself in terms of bodily appearance. She would have been expressing to anyone who would look on, my life is sorrowful. And so when her mother-in-law says to wash, to bathe, to perfume yourself, to put on clothes, she is actually stepping from mourning to hope. She's stepping back into the potential of the future. Her dress signals, of course, to Boaz, hey, I'm available. But not in any scandalous way other than the fact that she's saying, God has moved me from mourning to hope. We don't know how long this has been, but she's moving. Second, we've been told nothing throughout this book but the highest character and integrity of Ruth and Boaz. And in this moment, the author gives us absolutely nothing to cause us to question the nature of the relationship. And some of you go, but she, what about the bed? And she lies down at his feet. I want you to remember this. Remember Boaz's prayer for Ruth in the last chapter after he meets her and recounts all that he has done to honor his relative Naomi. Chapter 2, verse 12. He says this to Ruth as a prayer. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, here's what I believe is happening in this moment. Ruth is acting on that prayer. 
at the encouragement of Naomi, after she shares this story with Naomi, Naomi says, he prayed this for you. Give him the chance to live this out towards you. He steps in. He provides for her by giving her protection and and the excesses of his harvest. He is in many ways demonstrating the answer to his prayer for her by being what she needs. He admired her for living faith out under God's wings, but he acted as though she were under his. That's the beauty of this. His actions are subtle and perhaps lovingly directed. And to respond to this, Naomi suggests, Ruth, be just as subtle. Be just as available to him. So if it's possible, imagine this scene outside the context of sexual scandal and perhaps in the context of hopeful uncertainty. This is a love story. This is not a love scene. This is a love story that sets the stage for the audience to go, what will happen what will they do? Imagine her sneaking beside him when he's sleeping. Imagine how, fa- how fast her pulse is racing as she uncovers his feet and lays down at the foot of his bed in surrendered curiosity. Imagine his shock as he wakes up and hears her words. She says, I am Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me. Another way to interpret these same words, spread your wings over your maidservant. The fact that the author would say she lies down at his feet, I believe, expresses to us there was no false innuendo in this moment. This was complete surrender to what God might use Boaz to do for Ruth. I think there had to have been a silence as Boaz woke up. Um, What is that? Uh, um, What is that? I think that he had to be processing that this incredible woman, has she really come to me and truly surrendered herself to my will? Is she truly saying, if you'll have me, I will be yours? You see, this moment is the convergence of grit and grace. Boaz can do whatever he wills, but Ruth has done all that she can. I love that. We learn here a critical element of the character of grit. See, don't miss this. When it comes to our lives, if Boaz represents the Christ figure, the God figure, God can do whatever he wills, but we must do all we can. This is the tension of faith, my friends, that God will do what he wills, that God is sovereign. God will never be swayed by our thinking or our distractions. God will do whatever he wills, but you had better, we had better do all that we can. In obedience to him, it's the tension of grit and grace. Our faith pushes us on in surrender to the point where grace must become real. Again, I want you to notice this this movement to the feet of Boaz is to make clear there's nothing questionable about this night. She's surrendered into his will. One, One rabbi says it this way, says every element seeks to join itself with what is like it. Like things go with like things. But here, It is absolutely scandalous that a woman, a foreign immigrant widow with no hope in Israel, would seek out an elevated man of good character. This is the scandal because it's unlikely. It was unheard of. The Jewish people would have said, you're telling me a reputable, property-owning, well-known, well-charactered Jewish man named Boaz might receive an enemy immigrant woman who's been widowed and has no hope? This is a scandal. Because the goodness within her is crying out for redemption. I want you to, to imagine this because this is so, such a Jewish thing, right? Even today at the Jewish wedding, the man will wear a prayer shawl. And at the point of the wedding, the man will cover the bride with his outer prayer shawl and spread what are called the corners or the wings of his garment over his bride. And it's a symbol that they now wear the same prayers together. 
that they now live into the presence of God together as one. This is scandalous and incredibly beautiful because as Ruth lays down and he pulls the covers back, she says, will you spread your prayers? Will you spread your oneness over me? Look at verse nine again is what Ruth says. I'm your servant. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer, a goel of our family. She's asking him, will you be, remember that prayer you prayed for me in the field? Will you be the answer to the prayer? Will you do what you said that you prayed for me? And Boaz's response is magnificent and should have every one of you convinced that I believe this is one of the greatest romance stories in all of history. This is better than Shakespeare, okay? Look at what he says, verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness, this has said, is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Here's what he's saying. Why me? I'm middle-aged. You're younger. You're beautiful. Who, who am I that you would come to me? You've not run after these men. Now, here's what could have happened in that moment. Ruth could have been shamed by Boaz. She could have been thrown out of his place of rest. She could have been considered trash. Instead, this redeemer does not shame her. He responds to her has said, her kindness, her covenant faithfulness with his own has said. He's in love with her and he can't understand why she would pick him, but he is faithful. Now, ladies, is this not a good love story? I thought you'd be awake. Look at verse 11. And he continues, now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer, a goel of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning. If he, that other goel, wants to do his duty as your goel, good. Let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. Can you just say, oh my gosh? Like, this is a tension point. If you're watching this movie, the scene cuts to black, and you're like, no, what's going to happen? Because he says, yes, I'm one of your redeemers, but I'm not the closest, and I have to honor this culture. This is powerful. It shows a loving couple on the brink of becoming an amazing monument of God's faithfulness and love, and both of them have to surrender to what God might do through someone else. So she did she stayed, and in the morning, this is what it says, before anyone could know who she was, because he wanted to guard her integrity, she left. He provided more barley for her, and she left, and both of them wondered what might happen next. Can I say this to you about grit? Surrendered grit, grit will keep you in the center of God's will. It's possible to be so gritty, but not to surrender to God's will. When you live with grit that is surrendered, it keeps you in a place where God can show up at any point. God can do whatever he wills, and you're gritty, you're fighting, you're tenacious, but God will be sovereign, and you will be surrendered to that. Look at how this chapter ends, verse 16. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? And then she told everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. I think Naomi spoke with wisdom. I think she's the mother-in-law figure in the movie that goes, oh, he's going to get you. He's going to do what has to be done. He's not going to rest until this matter is settled. He's going to get answers because he's not ever going to forget your grit. I think we could say this. God is never not at work on our behalf. Now, I know English majors in the room are like double negative, double negative, double negative. 
we'll say it simply for you. God is always at work on our behalf. There has never been a point in time where God has not been working on your behalf. There has never been a place where God has not known the hairs on your head, where God is not directing and guiding and and sovereignly looking over, going, I will be fighting for you. I'll be working for you. See, while we have to walk surrendered, us as humans have to be surrendered, God works in power. Our grit, the act of faith that presses on, will always force us to a moment of surrender to the power of God. But guess what? God is always in power. He's never not been in power. God does not and will not surrender. He is always working on behalf of us. So today I thought, how do we, how do we take this and make this just applicable? Because I could read this story. This is how I preach. I could read this story and just be like, that was an amazing story. Let's go just think about it for the week. That's, my, that's how my brain functions. But I fail you if I don't give you some practical stuff to take out of here. And so I thought about you know, we're so into a culture that's so full of scandals. What if we took this type of scandal and applied it to our grit? What would it mean for us if we said, we're gonna live with scandalous grit? Because here's what I believe. I think the things that we celebrate as scandals in our world today, that's the easy stuff. That's the stuff that's not hard. That doesn't surprise me anymore. Does it surprise you anymore to turn on the news and find another politician has hurt someone else? has cheated on someone else, another celebrity has messed up their life. That doesn't surprise me anymore. That's like lost the scandal for me. But you know what would surprise me is if someone put on in the news, there was someone who stayed married for 60 years. That's scandalous. But see, that's what I want us to start to step into is scandalous grit. So so what I put down is just a few things that I think form scandalous grit in our lives. I'm going to try to cover these really quickly. Here's the first thing. If you want to be full of scandalous grit, here's what it's going to take. Number one, it's going to take courage. It's going to take courage. Imagine putting yourself in Ruth's position and going into that place where Boaz was sleeping. This is like ninja nighttime, right? She's sneaking in, she's uncovering his feet, and she's laying down there going, when's he going to wake up? (laughs) That's a strange moment. That's a courageous moment. it's, It's full of fear. Can I just ask you, when's the last time you took a risk that put you in the place where God might have called you? When's the last time that your life was so obedient to Christ, that was so obedient in faith, that you were nervous being obedient. If you haven't been in that place, listen, I'm not shaming you, but I'm saying to you, you're missing what God wants to do in your life because he will call us to places that demand courage from us. Your obedience to Christ will demand courage. Courage is part of the grit that we carry out. Here's the second thing, integrity, integrity. See, here, here's what I, what I find, and I, I said this a couple weeks ago, loneliness bleed, breeds ignorance, right? We make dumb decisions in isolation. Here's what I find. Often in hopelessness and in loneliness, we lose or we compromise our integrity. When we find ourselves in the place where, where Naomi was or where Ruth was and there is no hope, there is no, there is no ability for us to keep going, to keep pressing on, we find it easier to say, number one, I'm going to push away all the good counsel in my life because my ship is sinking, I don't need it. And number two, I'm going to make decisions that start to compromise my integrity. You say, what does that mean? Here's what I mean. Your fight for integrity will always be a battle in your life. 
This is why scripture speaks to us about the principalities, the powers, the systems of evil that want to force us to compromise our integrity. Can I give you some examples? I put down three. Can we talk about sexual purity? How hard is it to stay sexually pure in our culture today? It's incredibly hard. It is a battle for integrity. This is why you don't walk in the magazine aisles and go, oh, flowers, they're perfect. We see skin. We see things that are shouting to us, compromise, compromise, compromise your integrity. Parents, if you're not deeply aware of the things that are existing on your kids' cell phones right now, then you are missing the opportunity to parent them with integrity. It is real. It is a challenge. It is a battle. What about financial accountability? Some of us are battling that for our integrity. I've told you before, if you want to show me where your heart is, show me your bank statements. If you want to see where my heart is, I'll show you my bank statements. Because it is so hard to maintain integrity when it comes to these things, to our financial accountability. Here's the third thing that I wrote down. We could keep going. Verbal authenticity. Are you saying the things that you say? Is your yes, yes, and your no, no? Are you destroying people with words when they're not around? Would you say the things that you say about people to the people? It's incredibly hard. It's a battle for our integrity. It's so difficult. We have to keep fighting this because if you compromise your integrity, how can you be gritty? Do you notice that grit is in the word integrity? That's not by accident, I don't think. I didn't study it. I don't know. But that's really a good preaching point that I'm going to (laughs) use. Integrity is gritty. (laughs) If you're not gritty, you can't have integrity. You can't do it. I-N-T-E, I don't know what that means, but we have to battle for these things. And I'm just asking you today, listen, we can tell this story of Ruth, but if, the, if you're not challenging yourself with these things, then you're missing the opportunity to grow. When it comes to your sexual purity, do you need to repent of that today and make some things right? Do you need some financial accountability in your life? People that are gonna walk beside you saying, we're gonna help you fight to get free of your debt that's unnecessary? Your verbal authenticity, I hear the way you speak and I wanna challenge you in that. I wanna speak into your life. I wanna help you with that. It takes courage. It takes integrity. Here's the third characteristic of scandalous grit. But by the way, before we switch there, can you imagine, oh, these people are so scandalous. They have sexual purity. They have financial accountability. They're verbally authentic. That's scandalous today. Here's the third thing. Honor. That we would walk with honor. Right? This, is, this is probably my favorite part of the story of Ruth is the honor that these characters display towards each other, that there's no questionable motive. It's difficult to read about Boaz or Ruth and go, yeah, but I don't know if they were really telling the truth. She's laying at the foot of his bed going, spread the corner of your garment over me. It's beautiful because she honors him. Ladies, you want to be really seductive to a man? You want a relationship that's going to last for a really long time? Learn about honor. Men, you want to be irresistible to the ladies? Show honor. Display honor. 1 Timothy 5, it says this, Paul says this, don't rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Some of you say, well, you don't know my dad. But what about your heavenly father? Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. I love those verses because here's what I think. I think maybe about 40 years ago when the sitcom started to really emerge, what we thought became funny in our culture was sarcasm. 
That's what we started to think was funny. So everything we laugh at today is built on tearing someone else down, on dishonoring someone else. When did that become funny? And wouldn't it be scandalous if we said, I will not speak words, I will not treat relationships with something that tears someone down. I will actually treat every relationship as an opportunity for honor. How can I elevate you? If you're older than me, if you're younger than me, how can I speak into you? One of the things I love about our church is the way that the generations are mentoring younger generations. The way that my daughters are being deeply impacted by the, the, the women who pour into them. The way that, that, that our college-age guys that are connecting with the men in this church are being poured into. And I only want to see that grow. I only want to see that continue to develop. Because honor's hard. Courage, integrity, honor. I, I heard a story. A friend of mine told me she, she was at a wedding not long ago. And the wedding was supposed to happen on a Saturday. And here, here's what happened instead. Friday night, the groom went out for the bachelor party and had a little bit too much to drink with his dad and some friends. And then about maybe two in the morning, he had really had too much to drink, and he's sitting on the steps outside of a place, and a cop walked up and tapped him on the shoulder and said, you need to move, and the guy didn't budge, and the cop tapped again, and the guy didn't move, and about the third time, the guy that was drunk turned around and decked the cop right in the face. And he was arrested, and there was no wedding. Guys, listen. I, I, that, we can laugh at that, right? But here's the reality. Nobody destroys their lives on purpose. Nobody wakes up and says, I'm gonna go tank my marriage right now. It, it is small bad decision after small bad decision after small bad decision that eventually escalates into destruction in our lives. And if we could make right decisions with courage, with integrity, with honor, when things are hard, when it's worth the fight, then our lives would start to see an overall health. I, I just, it is unfathomable to, be, to me how unhealthy we are today and how all the answers are not giving us answers. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed how the culture of go help yourself and do what feels good is really not working? Maybe I'm the only one. Here's the last thing. Sorry, two more things. Risk. Risk. Ruth takes this incredible risk. What if it doesn't go her way? What if you use all the grit you have and things don't work out? What if Boaz is like, eh, I don't think so. See, it demands risk to follow Christ with grit. Joshua 1, he, he, I love this story where Moses dies. I just got to do a whole nother sermon on this. I'm not going to today. But Moses dies. Joshua's the second in command. God comes to Joshua after Moses has done these incredible things like walking through the ocean. <laughs> you know, that little thing. Getting them out of Egypt, watching Pharaoh's army die, God comes to Joshua, he says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, you and all these people, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses... So I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. I think if I was Joshua, I would have been like, could you just raise Moses back? He was way better at this than I was. So this is risky. He's being told something God wants to do, but he's not being shown how God's gonna do it. That's incredibly hard. You ever been there? You ever been in a place where you know God is saying something, God is speaking something, you're called to something, and you just don't know how God's gonna do it? That's the risk. Here's the last thing, Christ-like friendships. 
See, Ruth walks with Naomi. Naomi walks with Ruth. Boaz walks with Ruth. Ruth walks with Boaz. There's this community that happens. Friends, I want to say to you, you have to be walking with others in the faith to continue in grit. I, I say this to students all the time. I feel like I need to preach it to adults too. Who you hang out with will determine the course of your life. You want to know why you're a bitter person? You want to know why you're a negative person? You want to know why you never have anything good to say? Let's talk about your friends. That's the reality. Your friendships, can I just say this to you? Your friendships are not the answer. Your friendships are not Jesus. They don't get to be the answer in your life, but they are the vessel toward the answer. They are the way that you move closer to God. See, false community will kill grit. It will make you compromise. It will make you make bad decisions. You need accountability in your life. Courage, honor, integrity, risk, Christ-like friendships. Those are the scandals of grit. So as we start to wind down, I wanna, I wanna close with just this thought of that word goel, the kinsman redeemer. You see, the actions of the goel were the basis of salvation for the one in need. What the redeemer would do would help save the one who was in need. But the one in need had to submit themselves to the power of the redeemer. There's this weird tension in it. I, I think it's the tension between grace, faith, and obedience. See, grace says we receive God's love in spite of our brokenness. That there's this unconditional love that God offers to us. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's just out there for you. Faith says I will actually trust that grace. I will actually trust that God is who he says and will do what he promises. And then obedience says because I've been loved with grace and I've been saved through faith, I will be obedient. Ephesians 2 tells us this. It says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So as we close today, here's the questions. Number one, have you accepted grace? Ephesians 2 says, for it is by grace you have been saved. And this not from yourselves. Have you received the grace of God? Listen, some of you are not gritty because you don't believe grace to be true. Some of you are not able to keep fighting your way through life and following Christ because grit doesn't see, or grace doesn't seem possible. Have you received, have you accepted grace in spite of your failure? I know you failed. I know you know you failed. I know when you look in the mirror, many of you hate what you see. God doesn't. Have you accepted grace in spite of your shame, in spite of your sin? Then the second question, when you accept grace, have you responded in faith? He says that same thing. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. That psalm we started with today, verse 10, those who know your name trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. When God offers grace, have you trusted it? See, you can be offered a free gift, but if you don't take it from the person who's giving it, you don't get it. That's the path of salvation. And then the last question, are you moving in obedience? I love these verses because it's, it, it, this is the reality. Verse 10, we are God's handiwork. We're created to do good works. But if you're not obedient, guess what kind of works you're gonna do? No, I want you to interact. Are you awake? Some of you look really sleepy. I know, I'm, I'm preaching long today. Here's the reality. If we don't do the good works out of obedience, what kind of works are we gonna do? Well done. Yes, three of you got it. You get a gold star today in church. Go home and hang it on your fridge. We are created to do good works. When God created you, he said, I'm gonna put that person on this planet and there's about 600 things over the course of their life I want them to do. They're all good works. And we get distracted. Well, but my computer called to me late at night and I had to see some of that stuff that I shouldn't be seeing. 
I had to tear someone down instead of speaking life into someone. I couldn't do it. God, I couldn't be obedient with my finances because I just love coffee. (laughs) See, we struggle, but you're created to do good works. Obedience is not about God going, stop sinning and be good. It's about God saying, I have incredible things for you to live into. Will you follow me? Will you follow me? Because I've given you grace and you've responded in faith. Will you be obedient? I'm gonna have the band come. And I wonder today, as we talk about this word Goel, this this kinsman redeemer, I wonder if you might see Jesus. Josh, you guys can go ahead and come. I wonder if you might see Jesus in this story. I wonder if you might put yourself at the feet of your redeemer. I wonder if you might bring all of you to all of him because, listen, because he wants to write the greatest love story of your life. Do you notice how destructive our culture is today? There's not a w- one single week that we are hearing stories of sexual assault. And our immediate response is to defend a position rather than to extend compassion. Friends, our minds have been warped. We, we have responded with defense instead of compassion. There are scandals that will never stop. There are broken hearts in this room right now because you've compromised or someone around you compromised and you dealt with the shrapnel of it. There are patterns of sin in our life, pornography, financial failures, spiritual, physical, sexual abuse, all these things that are so common. And if we were to tell these stories, we would have broken hearts walking out of here. And the things we've equated to the scandals of our culture boil down to this. Here's what they boil down to. You ready? I wish they'd write this news story. They won't. Because the headline would say, we are all broken. We're all broken. We're all wrecked. We're all hopeless. We've all failed. But the greater scandal in the kingdom of God is that while he knows that, that wouldn't be a news story to him. He said, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to send a kinsman redeemer. I'm going to send a Goel. I'm going to send Jesus Christ to enter their culture to say, I know that your brokenness is far outweighing any sense of brokenness that's ever been experienced. But I'm going to send someone and all you have to do is surrender to him. And you will be saved that there's a rescue, that there's a love story. See, this love story of Ruth and Boaz is the love story of Jesus and the Christian. It's the love story of a God who says, I'm not angry, I'm brokenhearted. I'm not mad at you, I'm here with you. I'm not giving up, I'm not going anywhere. But will you surrender to what I have for you? Today. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna create space here at the altar for the altar to be the altar. Some of you know what it means. You've compromised when it comes to courage or integrity. You've been dishonorable. You've risked things that that you were never meant to risk. And you haven't risked the things that you were. You've walked away from friendships that were challenging you in the way that they should have. And see, the altar in the scripture is the place where they bring the sacrifice, where they come clean with God. They say, this is the place that I'm giving this back to you. And so today, in response, during this prayer time, as Jesse and Josh sing, I want to invite you to a place of sacrifice, 
to a place of coming clean, to a safe place where God will meet you and say, it's okay, we're gonna start over again. Surrender yourself to me. If you need someone to pray with, I'll be down here. Maybe if there's any leaders that are willing to pray, we'll meet on the other side. Come and pray with somebody if you need that. Bring somebody with you if you need that. But let this be a time where God renews, God restores, God speaks challenging things to your life about transformation. Let's pray together.